Welcome to a special Father's Day edition of the Into the Impossible podcast with yours truly, Professor Brian Keating. And it is no stretch of the imagination to say I wouldn't be a professor without today's guest. Peter is my PhD advisor, and in as much as you can say in academia, he is basically like my academic father. And we talk about our influences, his PhD advisor, the late, great David Wilkinson, after whom the uh, NASA satellite called the WMAP satellite was named. He had a tremendous career, also uh, connected to the initial discovery of the cosmic microwave background, famous being told by one of his colleagues, Bob Dickey at Princeton, as you'll hear, boys, we've been scooped by Penzias and Wilson. Uh, but Peter uh, fulfills that role, as we say in the Russian language, the word for scientist translates to someone who was taught. And to me, that implicates the scientist as having a duty, an obligation, morally or otherwise, uh, to teach and to teach people, but not only in the laboratory, teach them the Schrodinger equation, perturbation equations in, in quantum mechanics or in general relativity, or in my case, how to build a microwave radiometer and look for the polarization of the microwave background, but also in life lessons. Some of my greatest mentors in life were scientists, scientists such as Peter, such as Andrew Lang, the late great Andrew Lang that I write about in Losing the Nobel Prize. And these uh, men and women uh, that advise students have a solemn duty, uh, but also we become part of each other's lives. So Peter is in my life nearly 30 years after I met him as a bumbling, fumbling graduate student at Brown University. Now he's at Wisconsin. He still makes time every time I need something from him or talk, I want to talk to him. And this is really just a highlight. And to have it as my academic father, literally, uh, is just such a treat. So I hope you'll enjoy this, uh, this video. It's a little bit different, talking about personalities, talking about influences, talking about the biggest picture topics in science, but not only within the laboratory, also outside of it. So it's a little bit different. I hope you'll enjoy it. And uh, let me know in the comments what you think about it. Should we do more conversations with scientists about life outside the scientific laboratory or research setting? Uh, or would you like to hear more of the videos that we've done lately, uh, deep dives into things like loop quantum gravity, into black hole physics and otherwise? So for now, please do subscribe and also sit back and enjoy this ride into the impossible with my academic father, Professor Peter Timby of the University of Wisconsin. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And today we are speaking with um, a man who more than almost any other person has taken me to the heights or the depths. It's not clear if he gets credit or if he gets blame. It's Professor Peter Timby of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, who is my PhD advisor and who has been a good friend, a uh, loving mentor, and really you know, one of the guides on how to be a good scientist that I've attempted and obviously failed because I'm not as good an advisor as he is. Anyway, Peter, how are you today? It's still March, and so I assume that the thaws will set in any you know month now, any quarter now. How is it out in the middle of the West? Yes. Yeah, so uh, hello, Brian. It's great to see you uh, again. We're, we're doing fine here. So, you know, even though it's not San Diego, uh, we have uh, winter is over. So we've got the uh, the uh, lakes are still frozen, though. That'll continue for some months. But um, snow is gone and uh, birds are out. So, yes. Yeah, so it, you, you know, it's been a while since you've been in Wisconsin and uh, and spent your own days um, at the observatory and through the cold winter and so forth. Um, but we're, yeah, we've, we've passed into a new phase before the bugs have come. Yeah. I was there probably 10 years ago. Maybe, uh, I'll, I'll come back, but I have recently thought out from that visit, which was, you know, the coldest July 4th ever. No, no, I, I was there in the fall and it actually was so tempting, you know, my wife and I only had one kid back then and they were like, why didn't you like it here? And I was like, well, I loved, you know, the people, I loved the university, but this thing called winter, it would usually kick in around, you know, September and usually thaw by June. And it was the greatest, you know, kind of three month period of that you could ask for. But actually, it is a lovely place. The university is phenomenal. It is top notch. And uh, and I thought we'd kind of like maybe review some of the past history. But but also I want to talk to you about pedagogy, because when I was in your, under your tutelage, uh, the thing that I always learned is that you would give me a lot of freedom and one uh, and you'd make a lot of connections for me. And I kind of uh, wanted to obviously express gratitude for that, but also to kind of ask you, because I never really knew it, 
Um, you know, whether that was intentional or whether it's like with kids, you can never know what you're going to get because you introduced me to somebody uh, named Alex Polnareff, who is a titanic figure in theoretical cosmology and came up with a lot of stuff we do studying B mode polarization, et cetera, looking for waves of gravity imprinted on the cosmic microwave background. And, uh, and you let me work with him and he was sort of like a surrogate advisor in a sense or additional supplemental advisor rather. Uh, and he's a theorist and you're an experimentalist. Um, was that part of your plan or was that just the way that things worked out? Is that, is that intentional that you gave me this extra kind of care, you know, and attention that I surely did not deserve? Yeah, well, I think you're actually giving me a little bit too much credit because um, so Alex uh, came for a visit to uh, to Brown to uh, to um, uh, for extended time to talk to Robert Brandenburger. Uh, and um, so I think it was during that visit that, um, you know, all of us connected. And I think I think, though, where I probably gave you a lot more slack than many advisors would would do is I a um, I, I I think for your first I don't know half a year working on the project with me you were working mostly with him right so the idea was we you um actually you and he were were leading a paper about um, this experiment to look at um, CMB polarization and so just laying out some some fundamentals about how how that ex- experiment might work what you know whether it would be feasible um and so yeah i think i think you basically um were uh, working in, almost entirely with him for quite a while before you actually got your hands dirty building stuff and doing doing what i really needed and wanted you to do so it was um for me, it was great though because um, Alex, um, you know, of course, a world expert on these kinds of things, uh, provided a, a theoretical background that I, you know, I couldn't do. So, um, I yeah. So so it was it was. Um, I think so. You're not giving yourself enough credit because you really took a very mature approach to dealing with this uh, authoritative figure and and uh, you know getting what you. You know, learning what you could from him, mm. um, which is you know consistent with what you've done. Uh, I think for with um, lots of uh, um, knowledgeable people, you know. Uh, so you've you've kept in touch with me uh, over the years, and and I know you have with lots of people in the field. So you know, I think um, uh, yeah. So so but but I, I it is true. I do. I was really. Happy to see you um, sort of taking the initiative and and taking you know doing things independently, um, and, then, and of course that continued right. So uh, I think I cut you enough uh, rope to hang yourself with on your thesis itself, um, but that was you know that actually connects to the way I was trained by um, Dave Wilkinson when I was a, a grad student. So yeah. I think I was channeling some of the. Uh, techniques that he used in advising difficult people like myself. Um, not as difficult as you, but it, it turns out at least some of those techniques in mentoring yeah. worked uh, worked well, I think. Yeah, I've been known to win the Nobel Prize in obnoxiousness. Uh, and I wanted to say one thing that Alex Polarev, our Russian colleague that we spoke about earlier, that he communicated to me early on in our engagement together was that in Russian – the word scientist means uh, someone who was taught. In other words, it's it's basically connotes that you are educated, but that you could not be a scientist if you weren't, you know, mentored and educated. And for me, that also means that you have this obligation to become a teacher once you're a scientist. And I've gone off on rants lately about you know how basically we should be forced and strapped into you know communication. Uh, you know, Thunderdomes where, where we are forced to communicate what we do because the taxpayers pay so much for us to do this fun stuff that we'd probably do for free in a lot of cases. I mean, I always was having fun in the lab uh, and, you know, despite the pecuniary, you know, salary that you paid me at the time, which I think was four digits, you know, taught, no, I, I'm not that that's standardized. It wasn't Peter's fault that I was paid so low. Um, 
but, uh, but then I started thinking, you know, like, yeah, you were connected to David Wilkinson. I, I met him a couple of times, thanks to you. Um, and then I have a student, Darcy Barron, who's a professor at the University of New Mexico now. And then now she has a student, Kayla Mitchell, who's a student at the University of New Mexico. And they're writing papers about microwave radiometers. And I'm thinking back how, you know, this connects through to you and to David Wilkinson and to, and to Robert Dickey and this huge line. And we'll show in the in the B-roll footage, as the wonks will say, you know, we'll show them our genealogy, our PhD genealogy, which goes through me and through you, goes all the way back to a guy by the name of Leibniz, but not the famous Leibniz, another Leibniz, I believe it was. And uh, and and this is, uh, you know, an amazing person who had uh, a wife and his wife's name, her maiden name was Schmuck. And I always thought that was appropriate, you know, at least for me. Uh, but but let's let's take a, a step through how we came our origin story together. So we were at Brown. You were a professor, a young assistant professor at Brown. I was a uh, a neophyte, a, a novice. I'd come into graduate school thinking I might do theoretical physics or, or condensed matter physics. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And uh, I I did some you know some research with some of the professors there, and I asked around you know their students and you know. And, and one of them had a, had a white beard. And I remember being very intimidated by this student who had yet to graduate in his mid-50s or something. <laughs> I won't say who his advisor is. His advisor is no longer with us. But, but anyway, and I start, you know, who are the cool new professors, the young, the young upstarts that uh, will be hungry and will, and will kind of uh, be a good steward regardless of what they studied? And it was your name and Professor Vallis, uh, Jim Vallis, who I know is a good friend of yours. And you know, there are a few, and that was basically it. And I said, oh, cosmology. I was always interested in astronomy. But um, but one thing that really appealed to me is that you were doing stuff that was new. And in retrospect, that was really risky. And I'm wondering, you know, how did you balance the risks to your career? I mean, like, obviously, you wanted to get tenure. You were an assistant. You had only been there for a couple of years. What year did you start at Brown again? Uh, 1990. 1990, yeah. So this was 93, uh, late 1993 when I showed up. And there were you already had a couple of students. Uh, some of whom are faculty, Grant Grant Wilson and, and others nowadays. So you've got many offspring is, is one lesson I want to communicate to you. An offspring of offspring that are now graduate students. It's amazing. Uh, but were you scared? I mean, was it a risky thing? Was it not risky for you to take on this huge new project studying something? This is, you know, be, right after Kobe had detected anisotropy in the CMB, but nobody thought. Some said it was impossible to detect the fluctuations and polarization in the CMB. Were you scared? Um, no, I wasn't. And, and actually, you know, it's interesting how I, I remember actually deciding that this was a really good project to do because I was, I was actually at a meeting um, probably in 1992 or something at, at Princeton. And I was looking at the, the direction the field was going. So this is a, you know, a meeting about uh, uh, microwave background measurements. And at that time it was, you know, Temperature anisotropy was what everybody was doing. And there was a talk that uh, Wilkinson gave about, uh, you know, what was the next, what was the next step? And so he put up a slide of a, a um, he, you know, sort of his, his view of what a satellite mission would look like. Basically, this was the first anybody, um, first time I had seen somebody talking about something uh, to follow Kobe the Kobe satellite, and uh, this was maybe the first time um, he had what became the WMAP experiment, um, which you know went on to do amazing things. But it was at that meeting I was thinking, well, you know, here I am in this room with um, even at that time, in a, you know, what's a fairly compact field. There were um, maybe a hundred people there. Um, so all you know, all people working on the microwave background radiation, and thinking, um, how you know, how am I going to make an impact on a on a on a you know field that's obviously exploding, and uh, but also where most of the energy is going towards um, a few few uh, ever expanding uh, experiments, and one of them, of course, the the WMAP experiment. And so it seemed to me that I, you know, it was going to be best for me to try something a little bit different, right? Especially, you know, you know, because of tenure coming up, uh, I only had a few, you know, you only have a few years to, to do something. 
And so, uh, to, you know, to do something brand new, although risky, would also, you know, it'd be a lot of fun for one thing. And also, you know, wouldn't have to figure out how am I going to plug into an experiment that's going to have a timeline that's, that's much longer than that. So, so I was still, you know, I still maintained involvement in um, uh, ballooning experiments, the, uh, the top hat experiment and the, uh, what was called the MSAM experiment the medium scale anisotropy measurement. So these were looking for temperature fluctuations in the, uh, the CMB from balloons. But uh, yeah, the, the polarization experiment that became your thesis was um, really distinctive and nobody else was doing something like that at that time. And so um, it was a way to you know, feel like I had some and in my group could have some some breathing room so that we weren't plugged into some um, very competitive field with, you know, of course, the field remains extremely competitive, as you know. And I think maybe a theme for for research projects that I've tried to follow is is to try to try to see if there's some angle I can work that might be a little bit different, something that other people aren't trying. Sometimes that's worked. Um, and sometimes uh, not so good, right? And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. So I, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't really too worried about this. This seemed like a just a really cool, cool thing to do. Yeah, and even I think it was prescient in a sense that we were looking for the large angular scale polarization of that microwave background. And it's true, the microwave background has these three distinct properties: its temperature, its uh, black body characteristic, its spectrum, its anisotropy, and its polarization. And these features, you know, to this very day are still relatively unexplored. And the fact that this, the, the cosmic microwave background remains our oldest, you know, fossil relic of the, of the infant universe uh, will, uh, will continue for quite some time, obviously with the Simons Observatory and the Simons Array and Bicep Array and all these uh, incarnations of, of large angular and, and uh, polarization measurements means that we're not done yet. And every, I remember coming into the field and meeting with a past guest on the show, uh, Paul Steinhardt, uh, who you had brought, he was at the time at, at uh, UPenn, and you had brought him in to give a colloquium and basically saying, we're never going to detect this, you know, B mode polarization or in that time. And he had worked on the polarization of the microwave background uh, from gravitational waves and saying it's impossible. And maybe it is impossible. And maybe that's uh, why we have the name of this podcast, Into the Impossible, because we are not scared to challenge ourselves. Um, I want to ask you about your recollections of David Wilkinson and of uh, of Dickey, of Bob Dickey, in any way that you care to to kind of comment on them. You're kind of this vital uh, stepping, you know, stone, at least in my mind, and people that you know uh, and have interacted with. Uh, but you're also, you know, obviously a font of, of wisdom on your own. So how did they inform your uh, thought process as a scientist, as a mentor? You already mentioned a little bit of of kind of the freedom that that David gave you. But uh, but how do they augment the kind of nascent ability that you had as an educator and as a scientist? How do they you know how do they develop help help your career develop in the way that it did? Yeah, um, well, so first of all, um, yeah, so Dave Wilkinson, is, you know, I worked with him really closely, um, and not so much with Dickey. So Dickey was around um, and uh, you know a significant presence at Princeton, uh, um, you know. Uh, while I was in graduate school, as well. um, but most of my interaction with was with Dave, um, but they were you know they were both really uh, supportive and um, uh, you know I guess you know they they I had, there was sort of a, a dual role that they played. One was to set a really good example. I mean this is for both of them really good example of what a great scientist could was like, but. Um, but they were also really encouraging uh, in the sense of, yeah, just helping young people like myself. And um, it, you know, it, it, I remember, you know, getting to graduate school thinking, and you know, even when I finished graduate school thinking, there's, there's no way I'm gonna be like these people. And, and realize, you know, I realized very early on that there's, you know, comparing myself to, to almost anybody um, 
at Princeton in those days was you know, not a not a healthful healthy thing to do. But um, Wilkinson in particular was just really really supportive as uh, you know as as we were working together on my thesis project, which was an early attempt to measure the temperature fluctuations in the microwave background radiation. Um, and so, yeah, so we were talking before about uh, my pedagogical style, trying to uh, to keep you in line as a graduate student. Um, so Dave was, um, you know, he, did, he gave me also lots of slack, right? So I would, you know, I, part of it was, you know, I, did, I had a pretty clear idea what I wanted to do on a, a thesis, and, uh, and he let me run with that, which was really good. Um, but he would, um, and he would drop by the lab, uh, which was right next to the coffee machine, strategically placed there. And he would just sort of wander in, you know, hand in pocket and the other hand in the, on the coffee mug and, um, in the most gentle way, try to find out what I was doing. And then, um, you know, without pressuring me, um, Without my even realizing it, he was uh, just checking out that I was on the right track. I don't remember him ever saying, you know, you're you're going about this all wrong. There were times when I came away from the conversation and realized that was really what he was trying to say, but he was Mm -hmm. just very diplomatic. And... um, and so, yeah, I don't know if I was, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was equally diplomatic with with, with you, Brian. Uh, but he, yeah, so he, he could simultaneously, uh, you know, provide this inspiration that, um, that um, you know, drove me ahead in, the, in, in my, um, in my career, but also um, make it clear that, it, you know, just provide a supportive environment where I could, I could, um, I could make my own stakes and, and mistakes and and grow without the a heavy hand, which I know you know other advisors have different techniques, and um, for me this worked really well. Do you think some of that was because he was involved in so many projects from you know kind of wrapping up Kobe when you, you were you started there what in mid eighties or uh, when, when were it was you actually seventy uh, nine? You started in my 79. first. Okay. First year on the job, so Kobe was really in the middle of its development. You know, this is like a fifteen-year program, and um, yeah, he was pretty busy. Um, he was, um, I could, you know, I think, I think in a way, he was, you know, he was just he was very careful with his time. Yeah. So he, you know, he didn't overschedule his, you know, meetings with me and and with anybody else, as far as I could tell. Uh, but he did have Alon at his plate with the Kobe thing coming along, and then he was running this big, uh, the big gravity group there at Princeton. After uh, this is, you know, in the years that Dickey was retiring and, and stepping down from that that role, so he didn't have a lot of time. Um, he was also, though, very good. Uh, I learned something else from him, which I've tried to imitate, and that is um, very good at, at trying to carve out what he needed. He, you know, he was. He's a very gentle fellow, but he, you know, there was like a, he's sort of a, a fist inside of a glove, right? He, 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 he was a very, had a very strong uh, sense of himself, but on the outwardly, uh, just being a really wonderful person to, to, uh, to deal with. Uh, but he would, he would reserve Friday afternoons for uh, his own work. So he had a toolbox in the lab. It had a skull and crossbones on it. Nobody was to go into this toolbox. And Friday afternoons, he would be at a drafting table or putting together uh, stuff in the lab. Uh, this is for um, a uh, balloon experiment he was building to measure the absolute temperature of the microwave background radiation. Sort of, a, um, sort of in a way, a follow-on to the original experiment he'd done in the '60s to that actually discovered the microwave background. Right. And so he, you know, he didn't do things that he didn't want to do. And so I, I could tell, you know, the time he spent with me um, in the lab was, you know, he really wanted to be there and he enjoyed, you know, he enjoyed, uh, you know, talking about uh, new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, you know, he just he liked being a mentor. I think that's maybe the bottom line. Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, the, you know, the connection that he had 
I always, you know, from afar, again, I only met him a couple of times, <clears throat> but I met, always knew from afar uh, that he uh, was really fascinating. I mean, he could do anything, you know, I think his thesis was on like the muon and anomalous magnetic moments or something while he was at U Michigan. Uh, but, uh, but really his, his one true muse was the cosmic microwave background. And maybe even, you know, within that, the, the, the essence of his fascination with it was measuring it, detecting it for the first time, whether it be its spectrum, uh, or it's, uh, or it's anisotropy pattern or eventually it's polarization. He didn't live to see that, uh, unfortunately. But um, but I wonder, you know, you arrived there in 1979. That was a year after Penzias and Wilson won the Nobel Prize uh, for the discovery of the cosmic microwave background made serendipitously, uh, not far from where you were at, uh, you know, just a year later <laughs> or, or a couple decades later, but in Holmdel, New Jersey, where I've been. And I wonder, you know, did he did he ever talk about that or was it like, you know, they they say for old, you know, military veterans from, you know, the Spanish American, you know, they don't want to talk about it, you know, what happened to them. He was famously, you know, com uh, the the story that I relate in losing the Nobel Prize uh where you're prominently featured in six of the 13 chapters uh was, you know, we were scooped, boys, we've been scooped as Dickie's famous uh, alleged commentary when he heard from a third party uh, that uh, that this measurement had been made at Bell Labs. They didn't really know how to interpret it. Uh, and, you know, could Dickey give this interpretation? And it, lo and behold, was related to what uh, he and Roll and, and uh, David um, Peebles were working on. So did he ever talk about it? Or was it like, no, don't talk to David about that. It's a sore point. Um, you know, so while I was there, no, I don't remember him talking about it. Um, but I do remember, you know, after coming uh, to coming here to Wisconsin, um, this is many years later. Um, he he. So I had him come out and give a, a colloquium, and he, you know, he talked about um, you know the, this is in the early days of of uh, the WMAP satellite, I guess you know pre-flight, and you know was talking about the design of it and uh, and what the science was all about. But he also, uh, he took, um, you know, he spent a whole day here and he spent um, a lunchtime uh, with us talking about um, the story. Uh, so he's, you know, he's, he said, he volunteered. He said, you know, I, uh, would you like me to uh, talk about the, the discovery of the, the background radiation? I, well, yeah, I said, sure. So, so, uh, so I, you know, got the group together so for lunch and um, there were, you know, a bunch of undergrads, grad students, and um, and, and you know, he had, he had a sort of um, an outline. Uh, he had a you know single page of uh, showing the um, you know from the earliest days when the first you know, earliest concept of that their first suggestions that maybe there is would be a microwave background worth looking for that is a, you know some relic radiation from the Big Bang. Um, the, from the this is a calculation done by Gamov and, and others in the in the forties, which um, was you know the calculation was published but basically forgotten by Dickey and not known by Wilkinson and the others uh, in the sixties. But he so he had this whole process of how um, through various miscommunications or missed uh, you know missed opportunities. The um, discovery in the '60s was um, r really a surprise. Well, in retrospect, that uh, you know, there are lots of reasons that we we should have known, or 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 Dickey in particular should have known. Uh, in fact, Dickey himself had had made a measurement uh, 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 of the micro of the background back in the in the '40s. It was an upper limit. But it was, um, you know, the first measurement. And, but he had basically forgotten that he'd done that uh, himself. So anyway, so, so um, you know, when he was telling the story, it, it was, um, you know, there was no, I had, didn't get any sense that um, he was upset about this, uh, you know, having missed this. You know, I think he just saw this as part of the big picture of how science works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly never came across as bitter, uh, unlike no. uh, me or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I wonder what was their relationship like uh, between Dickey and Wilkinson? Obviously, he cast a long shadow. 
Um, and he lived, you know, quite a long time. I mean, he did uh, pass away and I think and while I was still at Wisconsin, maybe 97, 98, something like that. And, um, you know, I remember you and, uh, you know, talking about it, it was a sad day, but, um, what was Dickie's influence like on you personally, but also on, you know, kind of the field as a whole, uh, of both gravity research. He was kind of this Renaissance man, was he not, uh, that could do theory, that could do experiment. And yet we don't hear very much about him compared to a Feynman or, a, you know, one of these modern uh, physicists that you hear so much about uh, Hawking and so forth. But he, to me, was a very, very special and unique scientist. Can you talk about what your recollections are of him and what was his relationship like with David? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they, you know, of course, Dickie was the senior guy there and had brought on, had brought on Dave and also Jim Peebles. Um, uh, you know, he, he was just, you know, just sort of be, beyond comparison, right? I used to think sometimes, you know, in some discussions with Dave that, you know, maybe I had one up on him, you know, he didn't <laughs> understand something. And, and this is because I'd been, you know, I was working on this experiment, you know, night and day. And, you know, he, you know he, this is something he just uh, stepped in now and then to look at. Um, but, um, but Dickie, you know, there's just, it was just, you know, it's just, I, yeah, he was, he was just, just an, from another realm, right? The fact that he could do experiments and theory, you know, one person who could do that, it, it, I don't, I, you know, I've never met anybody like that um, um, since then or before then. He was just really remarkable. Uh, I, I do, I do remember actually, you know, in the, my first, it was my first year um, in grad school. We had this journal club. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we'd meet once a week, and people would give um, presentations, and there would be a half hour for a grad student and a half hour for one of the faculty to do one. I was the organizer one year, and so you know, this just meant making sure that we had a schedule. And so, just before one of the meetings, I, um, you know, I saw that you know Dickie was on the the schedule, and so I went to his office just to make sure that, you know, he, so, you know, he's retired at this point. He didn't, you know, didn't have to come to these meetings, but I just wanted to check in make sure if he remembered he was talking. And so, and I think I was also talking that day in the graduate student spot and I'd been preparing and you know, reading some paper and trying to prepare my presentation for, you know, for a week and, <laughs> uh, you know, almost a nervous wreck over this. And I went into his office and he said, oh, yes, we, uh, yes, uh, we have journal club today. And, and uh, he went over to his filing cabinet, <laughs> old fashioned, big, you know, big gray metal things and pull open a drawer. And said, you know, thousands of, well, hundreds of papers that he'd written. And he said, which one do you think people would be most interested in hearing about today? And I, you know, it just, I, you know, and, and at that time, so this is, you know, in the, in the 90s, he was mm. mostly talking about quantum mechanics. That was something that was, you know, he, it was a big theme for him throughout his career. Um, yeah, so he probably talked about quantum mechanics. But the fact that he had done, you know, he had written the radiometer equation, then all these things, uh, sorry, written the radiometer paper that, um, that uh, we both know and love yeah. um, at the beginning of his career, all the way up through gravitational wave um, or gravitation and, you know, a new theory of gravity, uh, the CMB, um, part of the invention of the laser, all these things is just, just mind boggling. <laughs> so anyway, so their, their connection was close, but um, you know, they weren't working together day to day. Um, really um, Wilkinson was sort of, over from as far as leading the group right and when i uh think about that paper of course we're talking about the very first paper that i was ever assigned as a graduate student by my uh soon-to-be graduate student uh, thesis advisor and maybe for those that aren't familiar i'll just say you know it's a it is a very close relationship between the mentored and the mentee or the mentor or however you want mento is it mento i forget uh but I don't the protege and, and we had so many good times and uh you really made you know what was not an easy situation i mean graduate school is never easy i don't care who you are and i remember at one point kind of getting disillusioned i kind of reconnected with my father and i was getting a little bit more torn towards learning about the fundamentals of quantum mechanics maybe or 
mathematics and 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 you said well you're you know it's not uh it's not a thesis if you don't have at least one crisis <laughs> crisis of confidence and i remember you saying you know you got to choose what side you're on key no no you never did that. that that would be that's in the movie but that never happened but uh but the point is that you you know you were uh extremely you're a gracious person um you are incredibly uh skilled at mentoring and and i think a lot of that is you have this natural ability which kind of is on one hand, it's very you know exhilarating and and appealing. On the other hand, it's kind of scary because I feel like we're never taught how to be advisors. Just like we're never taught how to be parents. You know, most of us have bad parents, you know kind of bad examples for parents. So I feel like we're all, you know the old saying in psychology, we're all victims of victims. You know, but but for me, it's it's kind of like learning on the job. And yesterday, somebody asked me who was a physicist. He he became you know now he's into like sustainable energy or something like that. But he, he was asking me like, um, you know, what is it about like this relationship in graduate school? And I said something like, um, you know, my new kick is, is that science means knowledge in Latin, as you know, having studied Latin, scientia means knowledge, but it doesn't mean wisdom. And, uh, wisdom is something different. It's, um, it's, uh, a different word in Latin. And, and the, the point is that, you know, knowledge you can get from, from Wikipedia nowadays. I mean, back then it didn't exist, but but uh, but what you can't get even to this day is wisdom. And and he was like, well, how do you apply wisdom in your daily? And I was like, well, it's kind of similar to what happened to me as a graduate student. Uh, I now am dealing with my graduate students, some of whom are considering jobs, and and it's very unusual because the thing you do once, you know, you get a, your first postdoc once. Well. I mean, for me, I got fired from my first postdoc. So I actually had two post, two first postdocs, if you will, but we won't get into that. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, you know, from the perspective of being an advisor, the, you know, wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad, which you know is a fruit. But how do you actually apply that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's experience. And the problem is, how do you get experience? As, as, as you know, I'm a pilot. I took you up one time and one time only yes. in a rental plane over Lake Mendota in uh, in Madison, and uh, you almost uh, uh, lost your life in a very perilous accident. No, no, it wasn't an accident. The window popped open, right? The window f- fell apart, right? The plane was 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 collapsing, right? Yeah, so you had to like land. I was freaking out. I so for somebody with a fear of heights, as you know and knew knew at the time well. Uh, you know, what could be worse, right? Yeah, exactly. But But we made it, we made it back. And, you know, that, you know, uh, on final approach to landing, I said, I'm graduating next week. Right. And, and, (laughs) you know, what choice did you, no, no, I would never do that. Actually, you know, it was a wonderful experience. You did leave Brown in the middle of my third year, second year, uh, to go to Wisconsin, obviously where you are. But I remember, you know, you really made it, uh, like a family and, and I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely, appreciative of that because I don't feel like I've been able to replicate what you did and, and the way that you, you know, kind of had a group that felt like a family, um, while you were raising young kids and while your wife who's also a professor, uh, was dealing, you know, with her career and, and your joint career. And yet you always made us feel that it was a family. Did you feel like, you know, were you trained in that way? It doesn't sound like David was necessarily like that. I don't think of him like that. Right. He, he wasn't like this, you know, kind of grandfatherly. I mean, he was in later in life, but what, how did you come about that? Was it just who you are? And and if so, what hope is there for other people that aren't as naturally gifted? <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of, you know, just, you know, what I was comfortable with. I mean, it's, again, it's not so different from what uh, what Dave did. Uh, he, um, I rem- he, you know, he would host uh, the Gravity Group picnic at his house, Um um, you know, every summer. And so, you know, that was a very welcoming thing. Um, I, yeah, I remember, um, the first one of those I went to, you know, I was really, really a nervous young, young, uh, young, uh, grad student uh, thinking, you know, um, do I want to go to this picnic where, you know, you've got Dickie and, and, and Wilkinson and, and Peebles and, you know, these other famous people, and so I remember kind of scouting this thing out from afar, trying to you know decide at the last minute whether I should show. And um, and he saw me, right, sort of peeking in, and he you know he you know he came out and he grabbed me and said, you know, come on over. And and you know it it, it really was um, he really was a you know very friendly, very uh, nurturing kind of person. 
and um, so so yeah. I mean, I I don't know if it was conscious or not of me or not, but I I've 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 tried to recreate something like that. Um, you know, with with my own own students, and mm-hmm. um, and you know, it's, I don't. I guess it's partly who I am, but also having that tremendous role model. Um, you know, I often think about you know what what would he have said in such and such a situation, and uh, you know, it's great to you know just have those you know some some very vivid memories to to uh, to fall back on. Yeah. So I want to turn to the paper that you did assign me. Again, we're talking with my PhD advisor, my friend, my mentor, inspiration, one-time sparring partner in basketball. Um, We won't talk about those defeats that were handed to you, courtesy of a much skinnier Keating. Uh, But I I do want to Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be for the rebuttal that you present on 60 Minutes. Uh, I want to talk about this paper, Measurement of Thermal Radiation at Microwave Frequencies. I emailed it to you, but you don't necessarily have to read it as we're going now. Uh, It's a paper you know well. You assigned it to me as a young as a young incoming graduate student in your group. And by the way, we used to have weekly meetings, and I do replicate some of the DNA from the Timby lab. Nowadays, we have weekly afternoon meetings where we have a student present some cool new paper, even if it has nothing to do with what we're doing. And uh, I gave a bunch of those ir- ir- you know, irreverent, irrelevant, and incomprehensible talks in the Timby Journal Club, in addition uh, to... Uh, to presenting a paper like this, which you had assigned, and I now assign this to my students. And I don't know, I'm going to check with Darcy Barron, my uh, my student who's professor in, in New Mexico, and see if she assigns it to her students. And maybe we can get this tradition going for you know 17 more generations. But um, but this paper is really a very interesting one in the history of physics because it it was embargoed, I think, until after the war. This is published in 1946 in the Review of Scientific Instruments, now known as RSI. Uh, And this was only the 17th year, I think, that it was even in existence. Uh, And it was published uh, after the war, 1946. And it's about this uh, outgrowth of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and their so-called radiation lab, which was kind of a counterpart, right, Peter, to the Manhattan Project, the more famous of these great projects that the United States military slash academic physics community put together to help win World War II. Um, And in this paper, which was, uh, so it was published when he was at uh, Princeton. He arrived, I guess, in Princeton. It says, there's a footnote now at Palmer Physical Laboratory at Princeton University, 1946. But the work was done at MIT. And he talks about this really kind of delightful um, analogy that one can make and, and the laws between the laws of thermodynamics on the one hand and the laws of radio reception and radar on the other hand. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your recollections of this paper? Um, what made it so uh, important to you? How did you find out about it? I mean, it's not like, you know, this was even common knowledge back in the in the 70s and 80s when you were a young graduate student. How did you find out about this paper? Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, so um, I, I guess I, at this point I can admit to a case of um, scientific theft. So so I actually, the, the, my, the first copy I had of this paper uh, was stolen from uh, Wilkinson, actually. So it's, you know, it's the same version that, uh, you know, you see, that, you know, printed out, but it had his name written in the upper right-hand corner. And uh, so now my copy, I mean, I still have that. Wow. And, you know, so it's now yellowed and so forth. So I'm, That's you know, I'm something. sure this, almost certain that this is something that that Dave assigned to me, or at least recommended that I, I look at in the early days of um, you know learning about you know how all this stuff worked. Um, you know how, how do you how do you make a, how do you measure uh, the temperature microwave background radiation? How do you how do you how do you yeah how do, how do you understand it as well? And so this is a great combination of experiment and a little bit of theory that uh, you know just perfect right it, it, you don't need to understand a lot before you go into reading this and then you can get a lot out of it yeah so yeah the paper i'm sure this was this was required reading um you know uh, in grad school for people like me <laughs> so uh looking over it what really strikes me is the uh, very deep you know kind of uh grounding that he's giving to people thinking about this new technology it would be like you know 
blockchain for physicists. I don't know, for people that are intelligent enough to understand stuff, but then it was something that was embargoed. I mean, it was really a matter of national secrecy at one point, because even to this day, we can use this type of technology um, to to you know make observations about potential um, threats to the United States or you know in the Space Force, which which I'm going to volunteer to, to join any day now. But but to monitor things in space, everything emits black body radiation. Anything that's made of matter will emit black body radiation, and uh, and and so anything can be detected by some of the means of detection that are outlined for the first time really in this in this paper and one thing that came out of it is a very you know kind of famous uh, laboratory technique that's used to this very day and you can buy examples of these it's the so-called dickey switched radiometer phase sensitive detector uh, can you talk about what that was like did dickey invent that um, what, what what is sort of the 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 uh, history of that particular invention that's used in one form or another in every experiment that we do uh, but also in commercial applications as well yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as I know, he did in, invent this. Certainly the, the idea of uh, yeah, phase sensitive detection or sometimes called lock-in detection, at least in the context of radiometry, which was, of course, what this paper was about. Um, but I think, you know, just as a general laboratory tool, um, this yeah, um, lock-in detection um, is something that maybe had been used before, but you know, you, you remember um, Dickey started a company in Princeton uh, that made a commercial lock-in amplifiers. So basically, it's a, a scientific instrument that you know that labs would buy, and they, they I think were the only source for many years for getting one of these things. You know, still buy one today, but. Um, um, uh, for, and, and so they're very powerful tools. So, but I think he, in fact, invented this. May have invented the technique altogether, both for general purpose electronics as well as radiometry. So, um, yeah. So this, this, you know, and he describes how this works in such a um, such a simple and, and logical way, right? So the, I mean, the illustrations in this paper. Um, include um, you, you know sort of cartoons of uh, of um, of um, radiation coming into instruments that are are beautifully shown and um, so yeah so so I, I think to to me this this is a, a great paper for new people to look at just because of the style the, the writing is clearly trying to explain how something works rather than trying to show off. Um, and so it's very different from most of the, the papers you find in the literature these days. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, to me was, you know, it was a delight to read cause it's understandable. It's comprehensible. It's, uh, evocative. You can kind of <clears throat> instantaneously get what he's getting at. He makes certain approximations. And while I was reading it the first time, I was like, why is he making these? And then later on, do you, I realized, Oh, he's just like really simplifying it. Like he chooses this arbitrary noise figure, you know, we'll get wonky for a second. He chooses it like to be nine. And then later we, we, I learned that, you know, you add one to the noise figure and that tells you something about the time. So later on to make the calculation be uh, simple to do in one's head, you know, multiply 300 by 10, he had to choose the noise factor to be 10 minus one or nine. So it seemed arbitrary to me. Uh, anyway, it's, it's very, uh, it's very delightful to read it and just kind of look at this magician who's going through uh, these, these kind of uh, relatively you know, challenging things to understand, but making it such that we can understand it. Of course, I love all the little uh, side notes that go back to, you know, the, the 1940s. He talks about the journal of the Franklin Institute, which, which doesn't exist anymore. And then <laughs> he has, yes, those delightful cartoons undoubtedly drawn by, you know, some, some, Proto graduate student or draftsman with an O U G H T, um, and then he thanks. Um, who does he thank? The writer is uh, so he writes. I'm gratefully indebted to Dr. G E Uhlenbeck, who is of course very well known, and Miss M Wang, Ms. M Wang. So these are things that we don't do anymore. But he talks about the uh, the you know kind of the the parameters. He gives an example. He describes how one might make it. And then he talks about the most important aspect of all, which when I'm reading it, you know, with the benefit of all the hindsight that I have or whatever uh, insight I might have. And I think he talks about what's called calibration. 
And one of the most important aspects of all the science that we do is calibration. And in some sense, I don't know what your opinion is, but I feel like Penzias and Wilson, they were using the same radiometer that was used by this guy, Edward Ohm. I don't know much about him, but he used the same home nail antenna. He had a very similar receiver, but what he didn't have is the Dickey switch uh, that would compare the temperature coming in, which we now know was was dominated in some sense by the cosmic background after getting rid of what are known as systematic errors. But the other way to compare it is they were comparing liquid helium, which has a very well-known temperature of four degrees, with the eventual temperature of the microwave background, which is three degrees. And they were doing that many times per second using this Dickey switch. And I just thinking about it, reading this section on microwave calibration, he talks about, well, there could be fluctuations that you misinterpret as being attributable to something coming into the antenna, in the case of the CMB, from, from astrophysical sources potentially. And you might attribute that, but it's really a fluctuation in your instrument. And so you can freeze your instrument by chopping between a calibration signal and, um, and the uh, signal coming in from the astrophysical objects. He talks about measuring the sun and moon. And I'm just thinking, you know, like 20 years later, he would have this, you know, opportunity to measure the microwave background. And it was measured using his technique. And, uh, and he didn't get the credit for that discovery. He, you know, he did, he was, he just had so many ideas that, um, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. He didn't get the credit for it. Um, um, he didn't get credit for a lot, a lot of, a lot of yeah. things. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a little mysterious to me still why that why that's true. I mean, it, people all have recognized he's an amazing guy. Yeah. Um, when I uh, look at uh, you know his career again, you know, this file cabinet uh, effect where he just had so much stuff in the in the in the file cabinet and the rolodex in his mind. Um, yeah, maybe it, maybe I'm okay because I don't have that many good ideas, and and therefore if I have one, I'm just going to be obsessive and think about it. You know, one thing I, I realized when I was writing my book uh, was that it wasn't clear when they wrote their companion paper. So he famously got this call. The New York Times is going to publish this um, this result that the Big Bang had been discovered at Bell Labs. It was a leak to the New York Times by um, by some radio astronomers and some people in the public. And, and Bell Labs had kind of tried to get credit early. And so they ended up publishing a companion paper right after Penzias and Wilson, which is like two or three times longer than Penzias and Wilson's paper in the Astrophysical Journal in May, I think, 1965 or so. Uh, and in it, the paper that Dickie, Peebles, Roll, and Wilkinson wrote, they don't mention the Big Bang at all. The Big Bang is not mentioned whatsoever in this paper. And it's, it's, uh, it's actually overshadowed in any sense by the notion that there might be a cyclic universe going on. And this was still kind of in vogue in the 1960s, uh, that you could have this quasi-steady state universe that could expand and produce observations that matched what Hubble and friends had seen. But also you could have, you know, formation of the elements, but you wouldn't need to do that in stars. You could do that in some early dense phase of the universe, but that could have been preceded by a cycle. And, and, uh, and I find it interesting that we're still kind of in that mode, like Sir Roger Penrose, Paul Steinhardt, um, uh, and, and other scientists are still very much thinking about cyclic universes. So what is it about these, you know, kind of cosmogenies formation stories, uh, that are so persistent that they refuse to die? Why are people so interested in explanations other than a single big bang that produced our universe? Well, it's the scientific method, Brian, uh, right. You, you don't want to throw away, I mean, you know, so, the, 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 I think the cyclic ideas are are powerful because um, you know it's difficult to think about a singularity. It's difficult to think about you know everything coming from a you know a single time and Big Bang, and so in a way it, it uh, at least to me it, it sort of um, you know pushes the question of the origin of the universe farther back in time. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I, it, it doesn't help me that much to, um, but but it do, it does avoid the problem of of uh, you know the, you know something very special happening at one time, and then you know the question is immediately what you know what happened before that. So this at least says well, we've got a model for that, but you know what happened before that? And that's, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah. It's like infinite regress. Um, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is very fascinating to see how people make uh, make 
you know, kind of everything that's new is old again or everything new is old, new again or old again. I, I don't know. But uh, I want to ask you, speaking of things that are new in our in our remaining time before I get to the questions of the allegations that are unsettling and the yeah. alligator, the alligator, yes, Peter, yes. that alligated them. Um, I want to ask you what you are working on nowadays, because um, uh, I know you're you you are ever wanting to branch out and never stay stagnating, resting on your laureate like Laurel. So what are you up to nowadays? What is the Timby lab buzzing with excitement about these days? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um, most of what we're doing these days is, is, uh, trying to map out larger chunks of the universe than, um, than we've been able to do before what people have been able to do before. So, um, essentially I like to think of it as creating many, maps of the universe at different slices of distance from us. So imagine the universe being like an onion and looking at each of the, the shells in the onion, each one farther from us. Um, and so these shells go, you know, go all the way back to uh, the, the microwave background radiation itself, which of course is, you know, told us um, a lot about the cosmology and will continue to do so. But um the technique that we're working on is is to use uh, the radio emission from hydrogen gas, neutral neutral hydrogen gas, as a tool to uh, to zero in on different um, epochs in the universe. So, um, because the universe is expanding, um, more distant or older parts of the universe are um, <clears throat> appear to be receding from us at ever higher velocities. And that is is causing the wavelengths of light that we see from those places to stretch out, or the frequencies that we look at them with uh, to be uh, lower than uh, when they were emitted. So uh, we're we're trying to make maps of the of the a particular spectral line from hydrogen gas as a function of redshift, which translates into a function of distance from us. And basically to try to capture as much information about the structure, three-dimensional structure of the universe as we can between where we are now and as close, as far back in time to get as close as we can to the time when the microwave background was emitted. So, um, yeah, so it's like a super CMB. I like to think of it that way. So you can analyze each of the maps at each of these different redshifts. Um, and and um, extract more cosmic information even than we've been able to get from the microwave background. So it's you know it's a very challenging experiment. Um, it reminds me of the early days of the CMB experiments to, uh, to you know where it's, the signal was not the signal size was not known. It wasn't clear whether the technique would work. Um, and so at this point in my career, I'm, you know, this is something I, you know, I, I really want to try to do. Um, uh, maybe I'm willing to take more of a risk than a lot of people would be at this, you know, <clears throat> who are, or younger. And, um, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's the main focus of what we're up to these days, sort of a combination of microwave background measurements, but, um, um, so sort of extend, ex expanding that to the, to the whole universe. Pretty, pretty ambitious. And what kind of technology is that using? So that is using uh, radio receivers, not very different from the you know b the basic idea that uh, that Dickey came up with. Mm -hmm. um, but these are um, so these are ground-based radio telescopes. Uh, there are you know a few of these that people are are putting together on the on the uh, planet um, that work by. Um, so to make these things sensitive enough to see what turns out to be a pretty small signal, you need a lot of, um, basically a lot of telescopes. And so these are um, arrays of, that are um, arranged as radio interferometers so that you, um, which basically means that you can combine the information from all the independent antennas to create uh, maps as if they're coming from a single large antenna. And and with the additional sensitivity of having multiple multiple copies of the of the of each antenna, so um, so it's actually using fairly um, you, know, um, you know stuff that is, that is directly traceable to things from a Dickey's paper on radiometry, mm -hmm. but now um, 
um, much more sensitive than he was able to 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 put together because of um, you know huge technical improvements in in sensitivity of um, receivers. Very good. Okay, Peter. Well, we have reached the end of the regularly structured interview, and now we're going to play a game, if you are willing to do so. Uh, and that is, I'm going to give you a Rubik's Cube with uh, five of the six sides have been solved, but the sixth side remains to be solved. And I want you to solve it in real... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do Thank that. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way I can do it. I, uh, so I, actually, I have to go to office oh. hours. Oh, okay. Um, well, I don't want to keep you. I'm so sorry. I thought I've kept you over. I'm so sorry. All right. Well, this means you have to come back again. Yeah, happy to come back again. This is a, a joy. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, you know being a gracious host and not exposing the uh, the warts and so forth. The underbelly. Uh, the underbelly. I'm sure okay, you Peter. Can edit this in such a way that uh, <laughs> that all that all comes out. So. All right, Peter, we love you. We are indebted to you. And I can't wait till we speak again. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating. <laughs>